scripture reading today comes from Luke 1, starting in verse 67 through 80. If you're using the blue paperback Bibles, you can find that on page 499. I'll give you a second to find it. Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would teach us about uh, the promises that you've made to us uh, in Jesus Christ, Lord, and that you would unite our hearts in faith this morning to those promises. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Icon. My name is Nate. I'm a community group leader here um, from the east side, and we are in an Advent series. Um, And last week, uh, Josh talked about Um, the virgin birth and the importance of that for our church. The whole series is about recognizing the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh and what that means for us. And this morning, I'm gonna be talking about how Jesus came and fulfilled Old Testament promises and what that means for us. And so to do that, we're gonna follow Luke's lead in in Luke chapters one and two. So in those chapters, Luke juxtaposes two births, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And and interestingly, he actually spends quite a bit of time on the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, For Luke, clearly Jesus is the the, the main point and the primary figure in his gospel, but in these birth accounts, he spends quite a bit of time on John the Baptist. Um, And I think he does that to teach us about the promises of God and about how how, how both the coming of John and and then Jesus fulfills those those Old Testament promises. So we're going to spend some time this morning looking at that birth account. Um, so if you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse, verse, starting in verse 5, we're going to walk through the story of John, or the story of uh, Zechariah and the birth of his son John together. So I'm going to read starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Let's, let's pause there. So Luke introduces this couple to us, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and there's a couple things he tells us about them. One, 
They both have a priestly lineage. So Elizabeth actually comes from the house of Aaron, which was the first high priest for the nation of Israel. And Zechariah comes from the house of Abiha, which was a, a priestly order, a priestly clan during the time of David. So this is a priestly couple. That's one thing. Another thing that we, we were told in chapter one here is that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are a godly couple. They're a couple that desires to trust God, to believe God, and they earnestly seek to, to, to obey. And the third thing that we're told here in these first verses is that they were childless and old. So, so this is a pretty, uh, like Luke really wants to drive this home. One of the defining characteristics of this couple is that they were barren. And during this time, in this era, that's, that's a, that was a big deal. Uh, you know, there, there, there was no child in their future to provide for them as they got old. Uh, and, and really, um, they were looked at as less than in many ways because they didn't have a son. And this would have been particularly painful for Elizabeth, who would have been looked at as someone who uh, could not provide for her family in the ways that God had intended for her to provide. She would have been seen as less than in that culture and in that time. And so this would have been particularly hard for her. All right, so let's keep walking through the story in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so Zechariah, we said he was from this priestly order of Abiha, and he was actually a priest in Israel at the time. And what that meant was, twice a year, his little priestly clan from his town would go to Jerusalem and actually serve in, in Jerusalem. So there were 24 orders of, of priests around the country of Israel at the time, and each order would come to Jerusalem and serve for a week, twice a year. So two weeks out of the year, Zechariah would find himself in Jerusalem serving at the primary temple in Jerusalem. And when they would do that, what would happen is they would cast lots and one of those priests would be chosen every week on the Sabbath to go in and actually perform the sacrifice and offer incense in the holy place. So out of Zechariah's clan or his order, there'd be two people, two men, that because there was two weeks a year when they would go and there was one Sabbath each time and they would cast lots, there'd be two people that would come and actually have the honor of presenting the sacrifice. So this is actually, um, uh, you know, and, and lo and behold, Zechariah is chosen at this time to go and do this. So this is really a moment of uh, cultural and social and religious, it's kind of a high point for Zechariah in his entire life. This is probably the first time and probably the only time that he'll have this opportunity to perform these priestly duties for the whole nation of Israel on a Sabbath at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he goes in to perform his priestly duties and something happens. Let's, let's pick up in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is amazing. At the, at the high point of Zechariah's professional and religious and social life, God shows up and he says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard. I've seen all your longings. I've seen your tears. I've heard you for all of these years, and I'm going to answer you. Let's put this in context for a moment. Zechariah, we're told, and Elizabeth are old. You know, at this time, you started having kids in your teenage years or at the latest early 20s. Zechariah is probably in his 60s, 70s, 80s. He's old. So he's been, he and Elizabeth have both been barren for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. And this was a big deal at the time. This was a primary pain point, a primary burden in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life that they've been praying for for 40, 50, 60 years. And it's at this moment when they're in the temple, when Zechariah's in the temple, that God finally decides to show up and answer him. And he says, I've heard you, Zechariah, I've heard your prayers, and you're gonna have a child. And this isn't gonna be just any child. This is gonna be a child that's gonna be great before the Lord. It's gonna be a prophet. It's gonna be someone that goes before the Lord and actually changes the spiritual landscape in Israel. This child is going to be a, a part of God's story in a major way. And, and, and more than that, this child is gonna be a forerunner that God is doing something here, that the nation of Israel, as they wait for the Messiah, is, is, is God is actually moving in this moment and something big is coming and this child is gonna play a part in that. <clears throat> I wanna take a moment here and, and just point out what Luke is doing rhetorically in this text. He's using Zechariah as a bit of a foil and as we read this text, we should see that. Zechariah has been waiting and longing and yearning for a child for, for many, many years. There's this wound in his life, and God shows up and makes a promise. The people of Israel, the nation, has also been waiting and longing and yearning for redemption. They've also been waiting for the promised child, the promised child. How will Zechariah respond to this promise? How will the nation of Israel respond to the promise of this coming child. I think Luke here, through Zechariah, is inviting us to see ourselves in him. Luke is inviting us to see ourselves in Zechariah and ask, how will we respond when God shows up with a promise? So let's keep reading in this story and see what happens to Zechariah, picking up in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. 
And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. So Zechariah is at this high point of his life, culturally, socially, religiously, he, he, he is in the temple, in the, most, in the holy place, offering the sacrifice for the people of Israel, and an angel shows up. And it's not just any angel, it's Gabriel. God sends one of his chief angels to send, to deliver this message to Zechariah. I've heard you, I've heard you, and you're going to have a son. And how does Zechariah respond? <laughs> he says, prove it to me. Prove it to me, God. Notice what he said. He says, how will I know this? There's, uh, so there's precedent in the Old Testament for when God shows up and makes a promise. Uh, and there's characters such as Gideon and Hezekiah and Ahaz. Some of these Old Testament figures, when they show up, God makes a promise. And in a moment of weakness of faith, they say, they ask for some type of supernatural or miraculous sign. So this is exactly what Zechariah is doing here. He's saying, you're making a promise how are you going to prove this to me, God? Give me some kind of sign, some kind of supernatural or miraculous sign that you will actually come through and you'll be true to your word on this. Well, <clears throat> um, Gabriel and God, it seems, wasn't too happy about that. In fact, it actually seems that God had warned Gabriel because Gabriel had an answer ready for him. And Gabriel says, you know, I am Gabriel. I came straight from the th throne room of God. He's like, I'm not like, you know, Joe Schmo angel, I'm a chief angel, I am Gabriel, kind of puffs his chest a little bit. Like I came straight from the presence of God. I'm in the throne room of God and God sent me to give you this message and you're gonna respond like that? You're gonna respond when I give you a message straight from God with unbelief? You want some kind of miraculous sign that God's gonna do what he says he's gonna do? And Gabriel says, okay. All right, you want a sign? God has a sign for you. You're gonna be mute until the promise that I'm speaking to you is fulfilled. And Zechariah goes home, and behold, his wife conceives in old age, and she's pregnant. Now, nothing in the Bible is accidental, and so as I was thinking on this passage, one of the things, questions I kind of wrestled with a little bit is why, why did God choose to why was the form of discipline muteness? Could have been anything, right? God could have done anything to Zechariah. Why did he choose to make him mute? Here's what I think. I think that when God shows up and makes promises to us, makes promises to his people, makes promises that speak into the deepest, most painful wounds in our life and, and, and offers a promise of healing, promise of salvation, a promise to show up and bind and provide balm on those wounds, we should believe him. And when we believe him, if we do believe God in those moments, when he speaks those promises into those hard areas in our life, there's no other response but then joy and rejoicing and thankfulness to God. That is, like, that is the only response when in the deepest fears of our life, God speaks truth into them and says, I will heal you. There's no other response but rejoicing. 
And so I think what's going on here is that God is giving us a physical representation of what unbelief looks like. What's the only thing that can block us from that, from that rejoicing and that joy in the promises of God? Unbelief. Right? It's unbelief that, that keeps us from holding on to and clinging to the promises of God to show up and heal us in those dark places in our lives where the wounds are. It's unbelief that prevents us from access to that peace and to that joy that ultimately responds in rejoicing. And so here Zechariah is, he responds in unbelief to this wound in his life, and God says, okay, you want a sign? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a physical representation of what your heart is like. You will be physically unable to rejoice. You'll be physically unable to give thanks. So there's a, there's a meaning here to the discipline that comes upon Zechariah. All right, so what happens next? Let's keep walking through the story. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name, pushy family. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. All right, so everything that God promises to Zechariah comes true. And at the time of his birth, there's a crowd, probably family and friends. Everyone shows up. Everyone's excited for Elizabeth and excited for Zechariah. And as was the custom of this time, you would name your child. Uh, Oftentimes, they name children at their birth. Here, they're naming their children at the circumcision eight days after the birth. The family and friends are still around, and they are like, you're going to name him after your, after your husband, right? Because this was the custom at the time. You would typically name your sons, especially a firstborn son, after the father. And Elizabeth goes, no, 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 no. We're going to name him John. And all the crowd, there's like this awkwardness, and the crowd's like, eh, mm, not sure about that one, right? And so, uh, you know, great family and friends who want to be nosy and in your business all the time, they go, okay, we're going to go talk to dad about this. So they go to dad. All right, and in verse 63, we pick up there. And <clears throat> Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. What then will this child be? For the moment, for the hand of the Lord was with him. All right, so Zechariah learns his lesson. There is discipline in Zechariah's life, and in this time of waiting until the, until the birth of his son, Zechariah learns his lesson. And we know this, he, he, he repents of his unbelief, and he attaches himself to the words of Gabriel. Gabriel said his name is going to be John, and this is what his life will be. He is going to be a prophet. This is what his, the outcome of his life will be. This is his mission and his objective. And Zechariah, in this moment attaches himself to that prophecy about his son. He said, the words of Gabriel, the words from God through Gabriel will come true. 
And in this moment of faith, and he attaches himself through the naming of his son, falling in line with these words from God, in this moment of faith, his tongue is loosed. And he begins to praise God. And he begins to rejoice. And his heart exults in the promises of God that Zechariah knows are beginning to come true. And he actually goes on. So let's read these verses again that we read, that Josh read for us earlier. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his mouth of, the, of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give life, light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Zechariah had come to understand the significance of what Gabriel had come to tell him. That it wasn't just that he was going to have a son, that God was actually beginning to move in significant ways. That yes, God had seen his suffering and the decades of barrenness that him and his wife had endured and all that came with that, and that yes, God was going to step in there and provide a promise and an answer to his own pain. But Zechariah also recognized that God was doing bigger things here. That God was going to use his son John to kind of begin the initiation of something large and big that was happening in the life of God's people. There was another son who would come. Someone who would come and save God's people from their sins. And this would be the miraculous sign. This is the miraculous sign that the sunrise will visit us from on high. I love how that language is just poetic and beautiful. The sunrise will come and visit us from on high. There will be a sun and that sun will be divine and that sun will come and visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Zechariah says that this would be to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises. All of the prophets spoke of this, and it's a fulfillment of the covenantal promises to Abraham and to David. See, God made a promise to Zechariah that he would give him a son, but he had almost also promised his people that one day he would send a redeemer. And Zechariah recognized that God was about to make good on both of those promises. So Zechariah and, and clearly Luke, who was writing this passage, see the coming of this baby Jesus as the culmination of the entire Old Testament. 
not separate from the Old Testament or version 2.0 of the Old Testament as if God had suddenly decided to mellow out and chill out and there's this new God on the, on the scene, but as if God would change over time, but that in fact what's happening here is a culmination, a fulfillment, a heightening of all of those promises in the Old Testament. All right. So what I wanna do now is actually go back and very briefly cover some of those promises that Zechariah sings of in this moment of faith. So there's, there's, there's three promises I wanna look at in the Old Testament, and we'll move through these pretty quickly, but I actually think that if we look at these promises, it provides us a backbone of the Old Testament. That if we get these promises, we can actually understand the Old Testament as a whole and actually understand how the authors of the New Testament wrote the entire New Testament based on these promises. So three promises that I think uh, Luke, through the song of Zechariah, wants us to understand. I want to bring us back to the very beginning to start. So Genesis 3, I'll just read through this and you can, you can listen. So Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, immediately after the fall in the Garden of Eden, God says this, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations actually say your offspring Eve will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. So here, immediately after the fall, in Genesis 3, God lays out his plan. There will be an offspring from Eve that will defeat the serpent, will crush the serpent's head. So that's the first promise. Eve will have an offspring that will defeat the enemy. Scholars call this the proto-evangelium. It's the first instance of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3, God lays out that he has a plan, and there's going to be an offspring that will come and redeem God's people and, re and crush the head of the serpent. All right. Second promise to Abraham. This is a covenant that Zechariah sings of in his song of faith. He got, Zechariah says, God, you are coming to fulfill the promises of your covenant to Abraham. So what is the covenant to Abraham? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Genesis 12 is kind of a key passage in the entire Bible. Got, like, there's no introduction for Abraham up to this point. Just shows up on the scene, God says, Abram, go to where I'm gonna show you, and if you do that, I will make a, a great nation from you, and actually, I will bless all the families of the earth from you if you go. So in other words, the blessing promised to Eve would come through Abraham and this family. So how does Abraham respond? He trusts God and goes. He, he, of course, has his doubts and his struggles, and so a couple chapters later, God shows up to reaffirm this promise to Abraham, and I want to read this because actually a lot of New Testament theology rests on this promise to Abraham here in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, 
your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham and his wife Sarah had the same problem that Zechariah had. They were barren. But God had made this promise to Abraham that I will make a great nation of you if you trust me, follow me, and go. So there's a problem if Abraham is supposed to be a father of a nation and he has no children, and he, he, he brings his complaint to God. He says, God, how are you gonna fulfill this promise if I don't have any children? And God says, I've got you, don't worry. Your own son who comes from your body will be the heir. And then comes a verse that the entire New Testament rests on. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there would be this requirement of faith. Faith would be the entryway into the promises of God. Not by being a good person, not by the law of Moses or its moral and ceremonial requirements, but by faith. And, and, and Paul in the New Testament actually makes this point that this covenant to Abraham comes before the covenant to Moses. This is the preeminent covenant in the entire Old Testament, this covenant to Abraham. All theology in the New Testament rests on this covenant with Abraham. It's not by works, it's not by being a good person, it's not by law, it's not by following these rules or those rules, it's by faith. The promises of God are accessed by faith. So to recap, Eve's offspring would overcome Satan. That offspring would come from a great nation of whom Abraham would be the father. And those promises, access to those promises, would hinge on the fulcrum of faith. All right, one more promise that Zechariah mentions that I want to cover quickly. And this is the promise to David. The two covenants that, that largely govern a lot of New Testament theology is the covenant to Abraham and then this covenant to David, the Davidic covenant. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, listen to these words as God speaks to David, who is king of Israel at that time. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of one of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. that They may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time when I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So, so clearly, David's son Solomon, if you know the Old Testament, is at least partially in view here, right? Like God is saying, I will give you a son to sit on the throne. But we also know that Solomon's throne did not last forever. And in fact, the, the, the Israeli dynasty at this time actually descended into chaos pretty quickly. But here God is promising to David that there will, there will come someone from your line that will sit on the throne and whose throne will endure forever. So clearly there's something more in sight here than just Solomon. And, and the Jewish people who, who, who knew these promises were also aware of this. So, so the offspring, let's, let's continue this narrative that God's unraveling for us through the Old Testament. The offspring of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent will be a king. A king whose kingdom and whose throne will endure forever. So, so here's the summary. Eve's offspring would overcome Satan. That offspring would come from a great nation of whom Abraham would be the father in the faith. And the offspring that would bring redemption and salvation for God's people would come from the, from, would be a king who comes from the line of David and whose throne would last forever. So all the promises of God would be fulfilled through this king and he would be the one that would subdue the enemies of God's people and ultimately bring salvation for God's people. And he would be the one that would defeat, first and foremost, Satan himself. And as the promises to Abraham demonstrate, access to this king, access to the promises that come through this king rest on faith. So that's the Old Testament at a very high level. If you want to look at the primary promises that form the backbone of the Old Testament, it's the promises right at the beginning in Genesis, the promises to Abraham, and the promises to David. And Zechariah, in his song of faith, in his prophecy of faith, records or recalls each of these promises and says, God, you will fulfill them. So Zechariah <clears throat> recognized that God was doing much more than just applying balm to the own wounds, to his own wounds in his life. That in the birth of his son John, God was on the move. He was preparing the way for the birth of the true king, the one that the nation had been waiting for, yearning for, longing for, for many, many years. And, and, and I think Luke makes clear the question that he wants to ask of us as we walk through this text. What will our response be to these promises? What will our response be? Zechariah, what will your response be in that temple? The, the nation of Israel, the people of God, what will your response be? And to his readers, what will our response be to these promises? <clears throat> And as I thought about this and this question, um, I, I wrestled with another question. Uh, why is belief so hard? Why is belief so hard? I think many of us 
experience the difficulty of belief in our daily life as we go out in the world and work our jobs and, and leave a church service and we're encountered with, with all of the stress and trials and chaos of life and, and belief seems so hard. Why? <clears throat> I, I think Zechariah is a good case study for this. Why did Zechariah himself struggle with unbelief, at least at first? Let's, let's take a moment and put ourselves into Zechariah's shoes. He had been asking for this one thing for 40, 50, 60 years. He'd been asking for a child. I mean, maybe even 60 or 70 years of prayer. Of, of struggling through this wound, of, of the glances and the looks and the, the social dynamics it created for him with his friends and, and out when he was with other, other you know, leaders and friends in his community. He had the uncertainty in his own heart about his own future. Who would take care of him? Who would provide for him? There weren't elderly homes at this time. Your children would be the ones to expect to, be, to take care of you when you were old. There was a lot of insecurity, a lot of social dispersion that he had experienced for decades. And, and, and maybe the hardest thing of all, he was a firsthand witness to the suffering of his wife. Maybe this would have been the hardest. He likely <laughs> sat with her through countless, countless times of just crying with her, praying with her, being a shoulder for her, she probably felt, and not probably, likely felt this burden even more than Zechariah did. At this time, a lot of self-worth and value came from your ability as a woman to provide children for your family. And she probably experienced the social dispersion even more than Zechariah did. And Zechariah has been walking with his wife in this deep, deep sorrow for decades upon decades upon decades and how many prayers had Zechariah and his wife lifted up to God saying, please do something. Please answer us in this suffering, in this wound, this, this, this deep desire that we have. And for 50 years, God was silent. God didn't, God didn't answer. Suffering upon suffering, and there was no answer from God in this wound in their life. Does God care? Does God see? Is he insensitive to everything that I'm going through? Zechariah wrestled with these questions for decades until one day in that temple, God just shows up. God says, I did see. I do care. I do hear. But Zachariah's heart flickered in unbelief. And you can almost understand why. God could have just showed up, said, Jesus is coming, right? Would have been easy enough. Probably would have been much easier for Zechariah to accept if God just would have come and said something a little bit more impersonal, a little bit further away from home. Jesus is coming, a savior's coming. Zechariah might have been able to accept that. 
But no, instead, God decides to take the most painful wound in Zechariah's life and press on it. I'm going to give you a child, Zechariah. And Zechariah's heart flickers in unbelief. Maybe Zechariah was afraid um, to, to be let down. This was such a, a desire for him for so many years that, that, you know, he was afraid to let his heart, you know, uh, bank on it happening. Like, this is something that I find myself doing that, you know, if there's, like, something really positive that may happen, you know, even if it's, like, 90% odds, I'll be like, ah, I don't think about it. I don't want to, like, bank on it and then have my heart, you know, be disappointed later on. Maybe that was Zachariah. He was like, oh, that sounds great. I don't want to... I want to commit my heart to that because the weight of being let down would be too heavy. It would crush me. This is the burden in my life and I don't want to commit my heart to something that may not happen. Maybe there was bitterness in Zechariah's heart. Deep down, we know Zechariah was a godly person, but in this moment of unbelief, it reveals something about him. Maybe there was some anger way down in the bottom of his heart. God, you haven't answered me for 50 years. Where have you been? You're gonna show up now? Mm -mm -mm -mm. Where were you (laughs) all those years when my wife cried on my shoulder? Where were you? Or, or, Or maybe Zechariah had convinced himself that he didn't deserve the blessing. He had internalized his suffering maybe as something he deserved. Did God love him? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But at least Zechariah's own sense of self-justice could be preserved if in his unbelief. Maybe he was afraid to let his heart be let down. Maybe there was some bitterness down in his heart. Maybe he had convinced himself that he didn't deserve it. Regardless of our angle on unbelief, though, there's a simple question that undergirds it all. Is God good? Can God be trusted? That's the question that Zechariah had to answer. And it's the question that Luke wants to ask of us in this text. You see, God wasn't just content to tell everyone, Jesus is coming. He wanted Zechariah too. And he knew that to get Zechariah, he had to press where it hurt. Zechariah, am I good? Would you trust me, Zechariah, even with this? That was the question for Zechariah, and that's the question as we wait and long for God to bring redemption, it's the question that God asks us as well. Not only in a macro sense, but also in those wounds that we have in our own lives. Will God show up? Can God be trusted? And at the bottom of it all, is God good? I want to end here Luke clearly wants to teach us something through this juxtaposition of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. I want to see one more comparison in this story as we wrap up. God didn't just show up to Zechariah, he also showed up to one other person. 
young teenage girl named Mary. You see, if anyone would believe, you would think it would be Zechariah, right? Zechariah was educated. He was a priest. He was well-respected in the community. He was the priest who, who would go into the holy place and offer sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. If anyone would respond in faith, surely Zechariah would be the one that would get it, right? His heart flickered. Mary, on the other hand, she was a young girl, probably 12 to 16 years old at the time, unlearned, no position in the world. She lived in a poor rural area. And the same angel, Gabriel, shows up to her and says, you're going to have a son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this son will be the son, the one that Ab the promise to Abraham, the promises to David, the promises to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, this will be the son and her response is, as we read last week with Josh, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's put ourselves in Mary's shoe here for just a minute. Gabriel had just told her that she was going to become pregnant out of wedlock. According to the laws at that time, she could be put to death. There was actually a decent chance that death would be the verdict. Best case scenario is that her fiance leaves her, divorces her quietly, and she's left to be a single mom, and she's broken goods at this time, and probably with little chance of remarrying, and as a result, little chance of provision for her in her future, and would likely live a life of poverty. That's best case scenario. Not to mention the, the, social, the, the, the social pressure and judgment that she would feel on her for the rest of her life. Mary had everything to lose. And this young, rural, uneducated girl looks those circumstances in the eye and says, God, you've got me. You are good. I will trust you. May it happen exactly as you say it's going to happen because you've got my best interests at heart and you are good and you are powerful and I trust you. It was Mary that responded in faith, not Zechariah, and Luke wants us to see that. All of the promises of God have their fulfillment in Jesus and Luke wants to ask us, how will you respond? Will you respond like Zechariah, who, whose heart flickered and who God disciplined and in love, God did bring Zechariah back to faith? Or, you, or will you respond like Mary, who is not the one you would expect to respond, but in that moment trusts God and God says, Mary, young, teenage, uneducated girl from rural who knows where, you're gonna be the one I'm gonna to use to teach the world about faith. Friends, whatever small and temporary struggles that we find ourselves wrestling with in this Advent season, may we respond to them with a heart like Mary's. 
May we know that the bigger promises that God has made, not just in the, you know, the, the, the light and temporary struggles as the New Testament authors call them that we face in our day to day, God will show up. It took Zechariah 50 years. God doesn't choose to show up on your terms. He chooses to show up on his own terms, but we can believe that we, he always has our best interests in heart not only in those struggles that we face with, that we face on a week-to-week basis, but in a more macro sense. God wants to fulfill every longing, every pain he will bind up, every tear he will wipe away. And it all comes through this child, the baby Jesus who fulfills every promise of the Old Testament. And, and the writers of the New Testament beautifully put it, they say, Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. How will we respond? I pray that with a heart full of faith and conviction, that we would believe those promises. And it may lead to rejoicing, a physical representation of the faith and the assurance and the security in our hearts. God is going to show up. It's my prayer that as a church and as a family, we would believe that in this Advent season. Let's pray. Father, we have to ask ourselves a question Are you good? Can we trust you? Can you be leaned on? Lord, I pray in whatever temporary struggles that we walk through as as intense and as painful as they may seem in the moment, Lord, and as unfair as they may seem in the moment, Lord, I pray that we would cling to the truth that you are good or that we would respond as Mary responded Lord, in full conviction, in full faith, and that our hearts as a result would have access to that joy, to that peace, to that rest, to that calmness, to that security that you provide when we access those promises through faith. I pray in this Advent season, Lord, that that would be the reality for us, for our families, and for our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are his.